Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your co-host Brandon Saxton and Katie Gordon is not with me at the moment. I'm just stopping in really quick to introduce you to today's episode. We had a really great opportunity to do a crossover episode with the Headspace and Timing Podcast, which is hosted by Dwayne France, who's this very cool, interesting individual who has really neat and unique experiences that make him equipped to talk about veteran mental health, having served both as a veteran and a mental health counselor. So it's an absolutely awesome episode. We had a chance to talk about Saving Private Ryan, as well as some of the unique experiences and challenges that veterans face related to mental health. So absolutely hope you'll enjoy the episode. You can find Dwayne on Twitter at thcounselingvet, all one word. Otherwise, you can find his website, which has uh, books, podcasts, and tons of information about veteran mental health at veteranmentalhealth.com. So thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the episode, and we'll be back again next week. So my name is Dwayne France. I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer, a uh, combat veteran. I have five combat and operational deployments. And then after I retired, I became a uh, clinical mental health counselor, a licensed professional counselor, we call it here in Colorado. Uh, and I work exclusively with uh, veterans and their families. Uh, in addition to my clinical work, I also um, am the, the founder and host of the Headspace and Timing blog and podcast, uh, where I bring on mental health professionals and veterans and family members to talk about how the, the unique aspects of veteran mental health can be seen in, uh, in, in post-military life. And I really appreciate the, the two of you coming on. And, and, and Katie, as, I, as Brandon and I were mentioning, is um, this is sort of a common thing in graduate programs um, to sort of use fictional characters to kind of work through diagnosis. Oh, interesting. That's definitely when I was teaching classes about mental health issues and therapy. That's something that I found helpful because obviously you don't talk about confidential cases and you can kind of change and give few details. But it's nice if you can talk about characters that people are familiar with or that you can show a clip and everybody's watching the same thing. I've found that useful. So um, honestly, I think that's where the podcast and our website really came from, was using fictional characters as a teaching tool. Yeah, I, I have uh, probably an overdramatic paper called The Madness of Raskolnikov, where I did a diagnosis of uh, crime and punishment. And, um, you know, and, and like you said, it's a, it's a good way to really look at characters in a different way. And then when, when we connected um, and, and I was trying to think of a, a movie or something where we could, you know, where you and Brandon, the two of you could really kind of talk about and, and do your thing. Saving Private Ryan was the first one to come up. Um, I, as a veteran, many veterans love this movie. It's almost the, the iconic World War II movie. That's It's so realistic. Um, there, there, when it came out in the mid nineties, there were actually an increase in the, the calls to the VA. Um, many veterans, not just World War II veterans, but many veterans found it so realistic that it almost triggered memories. Um, and so I really appreciate you coming on, or, or I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the movie. I'd like to hear uh, both of your thoughts about the movie, looking at it from a mental health lens. Sure. First, I, I want to say that we're really happy to have this conversation with you, too. We both care quite a bit about mental health generally, but also about veteran mental health. So it's it's great to talk to someone with the knowledge and expertise. And I, I just love what you're doing with your podcast. So it's fun that we can do this together. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I remembered something that happened many years ago. My my grandfather was a, both my grandfathers were World War II veterans, but one of them, I remember asking him if he was going to see Saving Private Ryan, and he said, you know, I already saw it in real life the first time, and I don't need to see it again. And so I think that speaks a little bit to how different people can respond to this. I imagine that for some people seeing the movie, it was validating or a way to share with people 
what they had gone through, whereas other people might be a painful reminder that um, that they didn't want to experience again. And and I, having not had firsthand experience, certainly felt at times like it seemed almost like a documentary. I mean, it moves so quickly and it's so overwhelming and excruciating for the majority of almost three hours that I, I think that even though you don't get to know characters very deeply, which kind of goes with it, you still get connected to them and kind of see how they're wrestling with survival, staying on mission as they lose people left and right. I mean, the opening scene doesn't, it's not like they ease into it either. I mean, right into this intense combat and, and this image of blood washing up on shore. So to me, it's, it's very moving and certainly felt like it provided me with some more insight about how difficult it would be to deal with that in this situation, but then also looking back to it. Yeah, I, I guess to add my thoughts, I, I know I just mentioned to you, Dwayne, um, while we were chatting before we started recording that, just today in my clinical internship, we actually had a didactic seminar on on veteran and military mental health. So it was on my mind already, and then I came home right after work and, and started up the movie, and uh, like Katie mentioned, it's about three hours long, so it just finished up a little bit before we started recording, so it's very fresh in my mind. And so I think it's interesting for me to hear about um, you describing how it's received by veterans in the military community. Um, I, I, I understood and, and recognized that it was very, you know, critically acclaimed and, and a well-received movie overall. So it's interesting for me to kind of hear or learn about some of that perspective and that it's well-received and as well as had an impact on a lot of people in terms of what you're describing with um, increased calls to VA systems and things like that. Um, in terms of the mental health piece, <clears throat> I think that there's a lot of really interesting and accurate, in, in my opinion or perspective, at least depictions of mental health that I think are, are done um, very masterfully in, in how the acting is done and how things are portrayed. And in a way that I, I thought was somewhat subtle, um, it, it I don't know if the intention was to just sort of like say, you know, here's PTSD or here's a sign of PTSD, but things were a little more nuanced <clears throat> and a little more subtle. And I thought that was really interesting um, to return to the film. Like I had mentioned, I, I hadn't seen it in many years. So to return to it now with, a, I think, a, a more critical eye and watching for some of those things, I think the, the film is really masterful overall, as well as the way that I think, at least in as far as someone's perspective can be who who's never been involved in in the military or combat situations. Um, it it seemed like it really did a, a powerful job of depicting of what that situation or those scenarios might be like. No, I, I, that's absolutely true, and uh, and and I think it was very deliberate that way. There's um, there's actually a um, so this was one of the first movies that uh, the Captain Dale die. Um, I don't know if it was one of the first movies, but but Captain Dale Die, and he's an actor, and he's been in some different things, but but he focused on bringing um, realism to Hollywood, um, military realism, and he first worked with uh, Tom Hanks um, on the Band of Brothers, and mm -hmm. um, or, or he first worked with Tom Hanks here, and then they did Band of Brothers later, um, and and actually I'd had a, a friend of mine on his podcast had um, Dale Die on, and Dale was a Vietnam veteran, um, and and Dale when he was talking about Band of Brothers, but he, he said exactly that. He said, we didn't want to create it. So, you know, parading somebody, there's a sign, this is PTSD right mm -hmm. here. Right. He, he, he said, we needed to depict it in such a realistic way. And, uh, and, and they did that. He was involved in this movie. He actually had a cameo. He was one of the officers in George C. Marshall's office when, when he was reading uh, Abraham Lincoln's letter, oh. um, the white, the white haired Colonel, that's, that's mm -hmm. Dale Dye. Um, so yeah, so, um, maybe if we can get into the movie, I, I know that, uh, we had talked about some different topics, but, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts and where you'd like to start. Sure. I think, you know, one of the things that is interesting, as you mentioned, there's, there are some signs of PTSD, but you also just see different ways of coping that don't fall in that category, which I thought seemed like a good point because I think that sometimes, 
and, and you would know better than I that sometimes it's kind of this idea that all veterans have PTSD or if they have mental health issues, it's more related to that versus potentially other anxiety, depression or grief issues or just other kinds of issues. Um, but the newest thing to me, which you had mentioned, was moral injury. And I read your blog post about that, which was really helpful for me understanding that. And I'd love to talk about that topic. Yeah, so um, in moral injury, is it's emerging as a concept. It's not actually a, a diagnosis yet, or, or whether it may or may not be. There's actually some discussion about whether it's parallel with post-traumatic stress disorder, a subset of it, but it's generally considered to be something separate. And, um, and it talks about how um, the environment can change what we believe to be right and wrong. Um, what we believe to be right in one area is, is wrong in another. Uh, and so um, this is one of the things after I learned about the concept of moral injury and looking at the, um, the movie one of the it, probably one of the easiest descriptions is um, is when they're playing poker with the dog tags or they're using the dog tags as poker chips and they really don't see anything morally wrong with it. They're actually having a game and even Captain Miller is standing above them kind of chuckling. And it's actually the medic that comes in and sort of brings it to their attention that says this is this is actually a very horrible thing that you're doing. Yeah, that struck me, too, because there are a couple of times where they're laughing or trying to make light of a situation. And I interpret that as they're desperately trying to cope and, and um, keep moving on despite these things that are going on around them, that almost each thing that's happening is enough that could shock someone and, and affect them for their life. And they've just have repeated without much rest in between. But yeah, I thought that was very meaningful because it kind of, you, it kind of goes to the people who are walking by and their facial expressions mm -hmm. and they look hurt by how callous it is that they're doing this, even if they're not meaning it that way. It's like they're trying to just be lighthearted. And so the medic kind of, yeah, he reminds them of of a basic moral code that these are people's lives and you're actually people are looking at you and it's hurting them. And I, I thought that was a very moving scene. I like to I think that was a really I think there are a lot of really good examples of that um, throughout the movie in an, a, an area or a, a concept that was kind of new for me. So I was really trying to soak up the examples. But I think what's kind of interesting about it is that that's one example where in a given situation, different people were at a different place in terms of their their moral injury or, or what was OK or wasn't OK. But then you also see examples of how that changes within a single person or individual uh, throughout time. So I think that's kind of an interesting way where you could see stark examples across individuals also within one individual over time and how that changed. So I, I think there are just a, a number of really interesting examples of that um, throughout the film. Yeah, it's really, to me, what a realistic depiction of how complex people are and how they're going to respond. Yeah. There are situational factors, kind of individual factors and time and how those mm -hmm. events. So that that's impressive that they were able to capture that. Yeah. I, I don't want to shift off of the, the dog tag example maybe so quickly. I think that was a really good one too, or, or, or a really good example. But the, the one that stood out most in my mind was um, the interpreter up him and how he very much advocated for letting um, the one uh, soldier go uh, who is a prisoner and, and everyone else very much wanted to kill him because the medic had just died. And he was very much against it and, and advocated to let him go. And so at that point, that's where he was at. He was at a very different place from several of the other people. And, and the captain eventually kind of came came to his point as well. Um, but then that that changes very much at the end of the movie when he sees uh, I, I the perspective is a little bit hard for me to follow sometimes. But I think he saw the captain be shot by that person. Um, unless I'm mistaken, and correct me if, if either of you saw it differently, and, and that very much changes it for him then. And at that point, that um, he's that's the person he shoots that person and lets everyone else go. So it's kind of this shift in in his mind as to what was okay or what's right to do uh, now versus what's right to do later on. And he's interesting because he starts in kind of a non-combat mm -hmm. role, right? right. They're asking if he shot since basic yeah. training. And he hadn't. No, and mm -hmm. so you see that change, and the others seem kind of annoyed, like you're mm -hmm. new around here, you follow our lead. 
And the captain, the other powerful part of that original scene when they're arguing about the prisoner of war is when he reveals he's a school teacher. And when he's in his hometown, everybody says that makes sense, but it's a huge mystery while he's in combat. And I think that shows how different people can be Mm -hmm. in in really strikingly different situations. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, another great example of, um, for, for military veterans, how we sort of exist in two different environments, two different worlds, as we call it, you know, the, the hometown world and, and what is right, so to speak, uh, or what is good in, um, in one world is bad in the other. Um, during deployments, for example, um, you know, hypervigilance is what keeps veterans alive, right? It's pathological whenever it's, you know, you're, when you're in Walmart, so to speak. But, but a, you know, a healthy dose of, of fear and anxiety sort of constantly is okay when you're in combat. And, and anger is sort of what drives you. And so emotions that are beneficial or even things that are beneficial in combat are not beneficial when you're not in combat. And things that aren't beneficial uh, are. You, you had mentioned, I think... Um, um, concern for the child um, as, as they go through um, one of the first villages and Caparzo goes to rescue the little girl. That's compassion for children. Compassion for others reminds me of my little sister. That's an emotion or that's a sentiment that will, well, that would be okay if we're not in combat, but it actually proves to be dangerous. We're in combat. And Katie, you had mentioned something that Captain Miller had said. Yeah, um, he said, we're not here to do the right thing. We're here to follow orders. And to me, that really stands out at how much of the lenses change. I mean, even the parents handing off the children and begging to have their children taken away, that's highly unusual. But in the circumstances, they're trying to save their lives. And you kind of even see the little girl is furious with her and starts hitting her dad. And so it you're you're absolutely right. It's kind of like everything is upside down and good is bad and bad is good. Um, and depending on what the context of the situation is. And Brandon, you had mentioned, and this is uh, going back to that, that dog tag scene. And, and I definitely want to uh, revisit Wade's, um, the, the medics uh, role, but, but another example of just this absurdity is, uh, was the glider. They call right. Yeah, absolutely. I, that that really uh, that was another. I mean, the whole movie is powerful, but that was one that stood out in my mind as well. How uh, they're very much describing this situation. How they had added, I think, a couple extra sheets of metal to the glider to keep this general safe, and they're d- kind of discussing like h- how ridiculous it was that they sacrificed the lives of twenty-two people uh, just for the chance to keep this general safe. And um, and then the it shifts right away with with I think Ryben is how you pronounce his name and he says yeah you know there's a lot of that going on right now um, just kind of describing maybe his own thoughts or maybe bitterness I don't know if that's the right word but about the the mission to to save Ryan and and his friends who are getting hurt or killed um, in in kind of the spirit of that mission so there is kind of this this shifting um, set of of you know of yeah, so this this wasn't okay. Why did they do this for this general is kind of what they're saying. But at the same time, yeah, we're, we're doing this for Ryan. And that leads to pretty significant conflict between um, the various members of this group um, further on down the line. It's so interesting because Ryan also says it's not fair, right? He recognizes that and doesn't even want to go home because it's not fair because he's thinking of the perspective of the other people who've basically behaved the same way, but because of circumstance, he's able to go. And then the other thing that struck me is that he says, you know, the only, these are the only brothers I have left. And I'm interested to hear from you, Dwayne, that seems like something I've heard before from veterans about those tight connections and not wanting to abandon people you care about. Did, did that strike you as something that, that rings true? Absolutely. And I think even going back to how uh, when Upham first came in, he he wasn't accepted, right? He wasn't Mm. um, he wasn't integrated into the group as quickly as Ryan was later. Right. You know, so so Ryan um, became very quickly part of the group is some through his the the respect that he showed to the the other ones that were lost. But 
but Upham hadn't proved himself yet, right? You know, he was the, he was the FNG, the freaking new guy, right? And he mm. was the, the, the guy that, um, he is the outsider coming into an, an, in group and tragically wasn't accepted until the very end. And then, you know, of course all that happened, but the bond of, the bond between service members is, is very, very significant. Um, there's, um, you know, it, there was a concept I had, uh, Dr. Ed Tick, who is a, a, a very well-known uh, expert on moral injury um, in the, the mental health field. Um, and he said that um, the, the true nature of, of the military is not to attack and destroy, but to preserve and protect. Um, to preserve a, a certain way of life, to protect a, a certain you know, rights or homeland or something like that. And so the, the true nature of, of what service members want to do is to preserve and protect. Um, and and, and the, he and I were talking specifically about, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan and perhaps how we felt as though we were, um, you know, uh, protecting a certain way of life went into Afghanistan. Um, but really when it gets into combat, the whole idea of preserving and protecting is just to the person to your right and left. It's the, it's the people that are right there with you in the foxhole or in the vehicle. Um, but the world really shrinks to, uh, brothers and sisters. And that's, that's truly how I feel about the, um, uh, the, the troops that I led in combat and I served with. And has it been your experience that in working in mental health with veterans that that disconnection after such a close bond when returning back home can kind of increase risk for having mental health problems without without that social support at that level? No, absolutely. I mean, this is the, um, you know, uh, Joyner's, uh, you know, the interpersonal theory of suicide um, you know, a sense of isolation, a sense of burdensomeness, and then the acquired lethal means. Um, and, and so when a, when a veteran leaves the military or, 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 you know, leaves combat, well, that isolation is sort of baked in. Um, and then, you know, veterans, of course, want to, you know, we want to be strong. We want to help each other. I mean, in exactly the sacrifice, because that's, that's really what Ryan did at the end of the movie was, you know, he sacrificed the opportunity to go home um, to be able to serve with his brothers, uh, and that was a very selfless act, um, and and it it very likely would have been psychologically damaging if Miller would not have allowed Ryan to stay. Mm. It, it it likely would have damaged him um, to a significant degree. So that's interesting that you say that because it seems like one of the other themes in the movie is struggling for meaning. For example, one of the people says to the captain that even if none of this works out, it will be a good thing to have saved private Ryan mm -hmm. to get him back to his mom after she's lost so many people. And so it sounds like what you're saying there similarly, that him deciding that Ryan deciding to stay and kind of have that agency about it, that, maybe gave him more meaning or sense of agency than he otherwise would have had. Right. And I think the, the difference between what I call it the fake Ryan and the real Ryan, right. You know, the first Ryan, um, you know, yes, they, they had just lost Caparzo um, and, and they had gone through even more by the time they got to the real Ryan. Um, but, but the grief reaction of the first Ryan. And, and as you said, I think, um, uh, Ryben even, you know, gripes to the command. I told you he was an asshole or whatever it was, right. That, mm -hmm. um, that they were like, you know, I knew this guy was going to be a goofball and, and that we just wasted a good man for a bad, you know, uh, mm -hmm. um, person. And, and so, and, and again, that's that idea of, um, trying to figure out why are we doing this and seeing this bumpkin really, um, mm -hmm. the way I think they described him, um, that didn't sit well with the squad. I think that was probably just reflecting, I think, on, on fake Ryan or Minnesota Ryan and, and his uh, differing reaction to hearing that his brothers uh, had died compared to um, real Ryan, I guess, uh, I, I think was really striking. And, and I suppose a, a big part of what elicited some of that respect um, from, from the guys is, you know, fake Ryan, I think he, he actually fell over. Uh, and, and then not only that, but 
even when he found out that no, his brothers were almost certainly okay because they were still in you know grade school, I think uh, he still like wanted to go home just in case something might have happened, um, as opposed to you know real Ryan who. Okay, he you know he took a second and and he he processed it pretty quickly and then sort of set it aside to to reengage with what was going on here and there, um and and stay engaged and committed to the the bridge and to the 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 people who he had been working with, um and serving with up until you know that moment. No, and I think you're you're absolutely right. You know, just this uh, the commitment to the mission. Um, and mm-hmm. Katie, you you had you had talked about before a little bit about the the justification trying to find meaning. And I, I um, was thinking back to when the the sergeant and Captain Miller were in the uh, were in the church, and Captain Miller's sort of enumerating, you know, and I wrote it. He he's lost ninety four men. And he says, I've lost 94 men, but I tell myself that for every man I've lost, I've saved maybe two or three. Um, and he says that uh, those 94 men, maybe I've saved 200. And he said, um, that's how you make the rationale when you choose between the mission and the men. And then he's, well, this time the mission is the man. And so it's mm-hmm. this mission-oriented thing. But then even Captain Miller's struggling in that in that point where he says, well, I wouldn't trade 10 Ryans for one Caparzo or one Vecchio. Mm-hmm. And still trying to search for that, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. No, I think that the mission is the man was uh, one of the strongest lines of the movie for me. I, I thought it was, I mean, that was a big moment for sure. And, and just grappling with 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 the mission and, and what it means and what it's costing for sure. And what... The captain at various points throughout, because it's clear he he is making the calls and making decisions about things. And a couple of times they ask him, what are the orders? And he says, I, I don't know, you know. And I, to me, you kind of see the vulnerability there. This is obviously a guy who's seen a lot of situations and seen a lot of combat. And yet there are times when... He really just doesn't know what to do. And some of it does seem like he's thinking about keeping people safe, staying on mission and just balancing a number of things at the same time. But the decisions have to be made very quickly, which I just can't imagine. And and that's part of why it's just so tragic at the end, you know, that, that he dies, especially after talking about wanting to get back to his wife, his worries that he won't be the same person anymore but now he's he's not even go back to his wife right and and that stress that he's experiencing and and um and again this idea of you know we don't have a blinking sign that says ptsd here Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder it can be challenging to depict because it is a psychological or behavioral um uh behavioral condition neurological condition um, but the shaking of the hand and a lot of people, you know, when, when they're talking about the movie is that Parkinson's disease, uh, but that's actually a psychogenic tremor that indicates the amount of stress that Captain Miller is under. He and the um, he and Sergeant Horvath had fought in North Africa. Um, and, and I don't think that uh, all these soldiers had been there, but but they had already been through, you know, one campaign in one theater and then, um, you know, he revealed to Sergeant Horvath first about the, the shaking of the hand. Uh, and he said this started when we started out on embarkation. So just before D-Day is when he noticed that it starts. And this this tremor that he has shows up in these high-stress situations. And so these psychogenic tremors, that's, that's a less well-known symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. Yeah, I, didn't, I certainly didn't know that. Yeah, I, I think that it, the... And the scene where they're uh, he's holding the compass and 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 he's having that tremor and and the men are kind of looking and and almost side eye like kind of observing this I think is one of the a really powerful and and a really well acted scene um, and I I think another facet of of Captain Miller that I found really interesting is he seems to want to. Um, keep that from all of the men. Uh, he, there's a scene where he just breaks down sobbing, but he does that well away from from the guys. And you can see he's maybe a, a little bit embarrassed that they saw his hand shaking with the compass. 
and and there's even this the it's a little more lighthearted, but I think it's in the same same line of thinking. The scene where he kind of says, "Yeah, you know, I I don't complain downward. If I'm going to complain, it only goes up. I, I I wouldn't do that to you guys." Or and like I said, I think that's a little more lighthearted, but I think it's still the same idea is that he sort of uh, wants to keep keep that from from his men and and kind of have this. Uh, this display that things are okay, things are calm, we're going to kind of get through this. So I thought that that's an interesting component of his character and how he's portrayed. Yeah, and I think it does a very good job of depicting the different kind of stress. And here we are going back to moral injury, the different kind of stress that a leader goes through in combat versus what an individual soldier goes through in combat. You know, the individual soldier has the, I lost my buddy, but a leader has the, I have the, re- I was responsible for this man's safety or these 94 men's safety, um, and I failed, right? And there's this idea of, I have, no matter how much stress I'm under, um, I have to show, I, I can't show weakness. And, and Katie, you would even mention when I, I think that, when the, the captain finally came to his senses, you know, especially at the, the machine gun nest where he decided, I'm not going to, to you know, shoot this guy, um, that he was on the fence. I mean, he could have gone either way at that moment. There was a group of them and, and pretty much the remainder of the squad were all four shooting the prisoner in revenge for, for Wade's death. Um, Upham, of course, was very much on the this isn't right. This is against the Geneva Convention. And, and really, Captain Miller had a moral struggle that he that was a burden for him because he was the leader that had to make the decision. Yeah, it seemed like it, it seemed like a relatable thing that there's so much unfairness and injustice going on around that they feel this one thing almost felt symbolic for some justice that the person who killed our friend now we're going to kill him and so it is interesting because you're it's not clear what what Miller's going to decide but it does seem something clicks in him and he decides to approach it that way by thinking about who he was who he is in in the other aspect of his life and maybe reconnecting with the morals that he is school teacher has so or even talking about, you know, his wife. And, and it's almost like he's thinking about what future him will think about his decision at that point. But he certainly does seem ambivalent about it. I'm thinking back of even a little bit later in the movie when he asks himself, how am I going to tell my wife about days like today? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it's that, another nice example of where he's, He's struggling, and I think he also even at one point he he says something along the lines of every man that he kills he feels like he's further from home. So I think he he is kind of grappling with with uh, what's going on and what impact is that having on him as a person and and who he'll be uh, when he when he goes home um, to his wife and and recognizing or, or saying that you know will she even recognize me? Am I even the same person? Um, so I think that's a really a lot of reflection and, and a really interesting, um, uh, just a really interesting character for sure. And an and interesting think, experience. Yeah. And I think this is a unique aspect of, of World War II. So World War II veterans, um, they were there for three or four years, right? They didn't have the, um, in, in each of the conflicts, there was a different method of deploying our troops. Um, in current conflicts, we all go over as a unit. We're there for a year, maybe 15 months or 18 months at the most for, for some of the, the longest serving units. But you go as a group, you're there for a confined period of time, and you come back as a group. In Vietnam, famously, they had individual replacements, which has been shown to actually erode the bond that we were talking about earlier is – you know, it's you have three months to tr- you're the new guy. Then you have six months of figuring things out. Then you don't want to get close to anybody in the last three months. Um, but but by that time and, and historically, um, you know, they'd probably been overseas for a couple of years. And, and having just think of how how much we changed right from mm-hmm. from one year to the next or, or even, you know, how different we were three years ago. Um, but that length of time that he's taken and how much he's changed um and, and he is sort of, um, you know, pre-grieving, um, you know, whatever challenges he's going to get when he has, when he goes back. 
one of the other things that you mentioned that's kind of adaptive, could be adaptive while deployed, but is is not adaptive maybe when you return home, is even just expressing emotions at all. And from the few people I've worked with with post-traumatic stress disorder, it seems like in the environment that they might have been in during the trauma, it's safer if they don't show emotions and they don't share how they're feeling. But then it ends up interfering with some of their relationships later on. And it actually can be hard in therapy. It's understandable that that's not an easy thing to just reverse. But you kind of see that a few times where people are trying to push down their feelings and not let other people see them and maybe not even trying not to experience them, Mm -hmm. which is kind of counter to human nature a lot of the time of how, you know, again, like reacting to hearing that your siblings died. And so that is another part that struck me as a huge challenge, maybe in adapting in a different environment to go back to kind of feeling your emotions more fully and sharing them with other people more fully. Oh, you're absolutely right. And going back to, to, to Brandon, your example of the glider, that was just such a matter of fact conversation. There wasn't really anger there. There wasn't much malice. I mean, it was just like, uh, it was foobar, right? It, it, like, this is mm-hmm. just another, you know, 25 men died because of this one man. And, 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 you know, he wasn't even, you know, saved, but it was, it was all just such a matter of fact conversation. And some of that has to do with, you know, it's, it's very hard to be emotional when you're just physically worn out. You know, these are, you, you, they'd probably been up for, um, well, I think even, you know, they showed it was like a, a three hour rest and you got basically a nap and then you're back out. And so you're, you're physically worn out. You're psychologically worn out. You're emotionally worn out and, and you just don't have that much emotion to give. And that again goes back to the idea that that's protective in combat. Perhaps it's when veterans will bring that back home. And that remains their coping technique when it's no longer protective and it's actually detrimental. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's one other aspect of in um, really of survivor's guilt, and you know, and Ryan is is you know saying why me, um, but I'd like your thoughts on the end, right? You know, is uh, Captain Miller says you know this guy better you know invent the longer lasting light bulb or cure some disease. He better, you know, we're doing all of this. He better make it worth it. Um, but then old private Ryan, um, is, is standing there and like, he's begging his wife essentially, you know, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Um, even these many years later, he still is feeling guilt and grief over the sacrifice on his behalf. Yeah. I I felt, just it was just such a sad situation because I do think Miller in part was trying to justify and find meaning in tragedy. And I think if you look at the situation, a lot of the decisions were made because of circumstances that happened that were out of people's control. And then it's trying to make it so that it was all worth something, which is a completely understandable human drive that we all have, especially if you're looking back, on your life as you're dying that, you know, I want it to be worth something. But at the same time, I could see that haunting Ryan as he gets older, because of course he didn't make the decisions that they were going to go on this mission to get him. That's not, that's not actually his call. It wasn't his fault in a number of ways. And yet he feels to justify the sacrifice. He has to, not just be a good person or not just survive so that his family has one remaining son. He has to actually reach these high levels of contribution to society. And and that's, that seems like a lot of pressure. I'm not saying that Miller was wrong for saying that at all, but it just seems like that would be very difficult to deal with on top of all of the loss that you, that you've already been through. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. I, I think it's such a, a beautiful consistency of the character portrayal as well and and how even right when Captain Miller and, and crew find Ryan finally and, and he hears, you know, 
two people died just trying to find him. And he takes that very seriously and asks what their names were in a way of, of trying to recognize that sacrifice in the moment. So I think right from the get-go, he takes it so seriously that these men were sent specifically to find him, while also he recognizes his commitment to the mission and, and the men who he's been there with and in his decision or, or desire to not want to leave despite that. Um, so I'm sure all of that really culminated in, in a very powerful response um, after, you know, Miller said, you know, earn this, earn this, James. Um, so I think that it was it was really powerful to see that uh, scene at the end of the movie where he's almost um, almost begging Miller's you know uh, memory and his wife um, for for that uh, for that validation or, or that acknowledgement that that he did good enough to to make their sacrifice worth it. And I, I just think that was uh, I feel like I'm using the word powerful a lot for this movie, but it was another powerful scene right. and then it's a yeah. powerful movie, yeah. you know? And, and I think that in, and even where he's, he's there and he's talking to Miller and, and even the respect that his family has to, mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of stay back and, and not even sure. I mean, it's, and I even got the sense, and this is typical that his wife didn't even know who he was. Mm-hmm. Like, like he has never thought he's never talked about captain Miller but yet he says every day since then I have thought about those words that that you said to me, and I hear that with Vietnam veterans that I work with. I mean, I and I have Vietnam veterans. There's not a Vietnam veteran who's younger than sixty five today, um, and there's just now Vietnam veterans in the last two or three years that have reached out and started to deal with things with the late onset PTSD. Now they've retired, more time on their hands. But I have Vietnam veterans that say there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about Vietnam. And and arguably, you know, for me, there's not a day that, that goes by where I don't think about Iraq or Afghanistan. But I'm actually still in the, the milieu, right? I'm still working with veterans in a very, um, you know, ongoing way. But it just the, the persistence of it, at that time, it had been, you know, 30 years. Um, and, and every day for 30 years, he has thought about Captain Miller but he actually has not communicated or, or mentioned Captain Miller to his wife at all, apparently. Mm-hmm. Both of my grandfathers, as I mentioned, and, and one of my grandmothers were World War II veterans and did not talk about it much at all. Certainly not to me, which was partially because of my age when um, a few of them died. But my parents also said the same thing. And so to have this idea that you had this hugely impactful experience, and I'm sure it varies a lot between people, that feels almost like you have a side that people don't know except the people that were there with you. Even that must is something that seems very specific with people who have been deployed and that would be hard for people who haven't to relate to this idea that you have people in your life who are very close to you and significant, but they don't know these big portions of who you are, you know? And, and, and it's not, I think, um, that it's held through shame uh, because he, you know, he wears his 101st pin. You can tell that he actually is proud. He's a proud veteran. Um, you know, it's, it's taking the entire family to France where the um, you know, where Captain Miller was buried. I mean, this is a huge undertaking. So this is obviously something that he's very proud of and his family know in a general sense, but in the specific sense, um, it's, it's just not there. And again, I, I refer back to Vietnam and this is, so, um, my father and three of my uncles served in Vietnam. Um, it wasn't until after I was in the army for, um, you know, eight or 10 years and about to deploy to Iraq the first time, then my father first really started talking about it. And it wasn't until after I came back that I started hearing more specifics. And I was 35 years old when I, um, when I first went to Iraq. And so it's, it's this thing about, you know, what we don't talk about, it's hidden inside, but also what we don't talk about. And this goes back to mental health in general. If it's not spoken and if it's not addressed sort of out loud, um, it, it can really just sort of linger and fester, I guess. Absolutely. I have a question, if you don't mind answering it, that came up because you were talking about Vietnam versus World War II and some of the differences there. Some of the things I've read about that I, I wonder if it's consistent with your experience is that 
that's from uh, veterans from Vietnam versus from World War II sometimes have different mental health experiences related to societal, the way that society thinks about the value of going to war in Vietnam um, versus World War II and what was accomplished ultimately through those wars. Is that something that comes up with different people you work with? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, so World War II, uh, and, and this is sort of how they break down, is World War II, the veterans came back and they were celebrated, right? And, and, and of course, there were so many, you know, people mobilized in World War II that everybody knew somebody, right? There was, you know, it was a very common thing. Um, and then Korean War, um, you know, was really, you know, a, a lot of the there was the draft, of course, still then and some men were drafted in. But it was sort of the career people who were in World War and then uh, World War Two and then Korea. But sort of Korea was this forgotten war. Um, but by the time we emerged into the late 60s, the, the nation had changed its attitude towards towards the war. And many Vietnam veterans came back and and you know, were reviled, essentially. Um, but they didn't feel like they, they fit in. And it was really about 15 years until the mid 80s, that a lot of the Vietnam, when the wall, the Vietnam Memorial um, was established, and President Reagan really staged this, you know, we need to welcome them home. Again, personal, um, the first time I was about 14 years old, and that was about the mid 80s, when my, my father and my uncle took me to this gathering of Vietnam veterans. And, and I remember, to this day, very clearly, my uncle saying, this is my welcome home. And this and, and they served 67 and 69. So 15, almost 20 years, they had to deny, quote unquote, their veteranness. Um, and there's still a lot of bitterness that a lot of Vietnam veterans have around that. And then we start the cycle all over again as the Gulf War happened in a, it was a hundred hours combat in the Persian Gulf War in the in the early 90s, sort of the forgotten war. And now we've emerged into this first, po you know, cross-generational war because we've been, you know, in Iraq, in, in various on and off in Syria, but Afghanistan sustained for the last 18 years. Um, and, and so some of the veterans now feel like they've gotten all three of those. Okay, you come back, you treat me like a hero. Other times you sort of, you know, look down on me because you think I'm a crazy combat vet. And other times, you know, oh, there's still a war going on. So it, it's... Now, sort of all three of these things have coalesced, um, but there is that big difference between Vietnam, Korea, and World War II, the, the nation's response to those veterans. That's, that, I could see how that could be a major factor in terms of how people view whether what they did was worthy or whether they feel like they're being valued by other people. I mean, we're social creatures. And so getting feedback about what you did, if it was heroic versus, like you said, being reviled, it just seems like that could be a major component too. And the involuntariness, I mean, especially in the, you know, the height of the, the Vietnam War is when the, the draft or the, the, the specter of the draft, all of my, my father and, and my uncles all joined in order to avoid the draft. If, if you're going to get me, I'm going to, you know, at least choose what I'm going to do. Mm. Um, and, and so it was like, it, it was, you're, you're holding me, and this is something I've literally heard from Vietnam veterans is I'm being held responsible for just doing what I was supposed to do. You know, and, and I call especially the draftees or, you know, they're the reluctant warriors. They went and they did their job and they served for in, in the draftees um, and the lottery. They had to serve for two years. Um, they didn't want to do it, but they did it because they felt it was their duty. And when they came back, most of them, many of them, their fathers were in World War Two. Their their older brothers were in Korea and they came back expecting the same sort of thing. And they got the exact opposite. And, and that has been a lot of the challenge for Vietnam veterans is the response of the nation post-military as much, if not more than what they experienced in combat. And kind of going with the theme that's come up a couple times, the idea that a lot of, especially when there's a draft situation, that hostility is maybe it's also directed towards the people who made the decisions about the Vietnam War, but it seems like directing that towards 
people who were drafted or decided to do because they knew they were going to get drafted in a way it, it, it really, it doesn't make sense and maybe it doesn't have to make sense, but uh, it seems like more of that if people are upset with it about it, which is completely understandable, directing that towards people who were drafted or decide to go because of the draft is, it seems like it, it can be really harmful to people and, and not really compassionate about what their situation was and is. No, I think you're exactly right. You know, this, the idea of, um, and again, you had mentioned the meaning making, you know, that somebody has to pay, right? And I can't, you know, I can't get them, right? I, I can't be angry at the them and whoever they are, but there is this person, uh, you know, there's this national anger around what, what's going on, um, and I need to have a target. Um, it, but even it goes back to, to Captain Miller is, well, well, I've got to hold on to something, and that something is getting Private Ryan home, right? I've got to hold on to some type of, this has to make sense in some way, and I have to, he even, I think, said it himself a couple times, I have to rationalize this to myself, or else I'll go crazy. Non-clinically, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, this, is, this has been amazing. I, I really, I was very much looking forward to this. Um, and, and it's, it's lived up absolutely to my expectations. Um, I, maybe I'd like to, to have a, a couple of, uh, final thoughts from each of you about sort of the, the psychology of saving private Ryan. Uh, I can start. Well, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I, I want to qualify it, I guess. I, I, Speaking as someone who hasn't served in the military and a non-veteran, I, I just you're very much the expert on this area, uh, Dwayne. But uh, from someone from with my perspective, I think that the psychology of the of the film was uh, just really, really well um, portrayed, uh, both with the writing and the acting and and just the, just such a well done film. And I think that a lot of the psychological themes related to uh, the experiences of trauma and and loss and making challenging decisions and grappling with morality and deciding what's the right thing to do and and may, or what's the good thing to do and and are those the same? Uh, I think it was it depicted all of these themes so incredibly well and in a way that um, at least from my perspective seemed really really genuine and accurate and done in a way to at least with my viewing experience um, instilled a lot of uh, you know empathy for the experience of people who go through these kind of events that are outside of anything that I, that I've ever participated in or experienced or been a part of so I think the the psychology of the film uh, in, in terms of what you can ask for from a fictional example is just really exceptionally well done and in a, a positive um, kind of empathetic, accurate portrayal. And I, I completely agree with everything Brandon said. And the only thing I'll add is that I, I felt this way before, but after seeing the movie again, it it's just so clear that, we have to provide appropriate mental health care for veterans for the things that they're doing. Now I understand that was, this was specific to world war two, but still there are elements of that still in existence. And I have some family currently in military too. And so I think about these things Um, in, in addition to just thinking more broadly uh, when I was a professor, I had students who were veterans, for example, and it just, we have to, make sure as a society that the access to these resources are available to these people who have been through a lot and who need it and have worked for, I mean, for the country. And the the least we can do is make sure that they're supported when they get back so that they can have the highest quality of life possible. Yes, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, the idea of uh, the need is there, right? And um, and and from my experience, um, a personal experience, but also my clinical work is 
um, veterans really do want people to understand what they went through. You know, this is one of the, I, I deal with a lot of paradoxes. I think we do in mental health and generally, but, but a, a number of paradoxes that, that veterans struggle with is they want people to know what they experienced, but at the same time, there's no way you're going to get it out of them. So there's this, this dichotomy that's sort of, uh, you know, in opposition to each other and, and veterans can point to Saving Private Ryan and said, oh, do you want to know what I went through here? Watch this, right? So it's a way to sort of filter their story. It's a way to tell their story and sort of communicate to that. And that's why I think a lot of veterans have rallied around this because they're not going to stand up, you know, and, and say, you know, like you just said, Katie, was I need this help or this help is important. Um, they'll just let you watch Saving Private Ryan and, and come to your own conclusion. So And so I think that... Um, Again, a very well done movie, but also, um, you know, it's sustaining. I, I think it was, you know, we're going on 20 years since it, um, uh, since it was created. And, and I, I literally remember watching this film in the theaters. Me and a friend of mine, we were at Fort Bragg. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. He and I, uh, went to the, whatever, the one movie theater in Fayetteville and watched it. And when the lights came up, it was, it was dead silent. And nobody was looking at each other. It's like, I'm not crying. You're crying, right? You know, but there was this, it was so powerful. And I remember it even clearly to this day um, that, you know, it was almost like, you, you know, I, I was breathless, you know, and, and even by that time I hadn't deployed to combat. You know, I think I'd been to Bosnia and it wasn't necessarily combat, but, and so it's a way for veterans to say, here's this story hear our story without me actually having to go through telling it. And I think that really speaks to, to what I think both of you were talking about was both the power of the movie emotionally, but all the te also the testament of, of what we as a nation might owe those who served. And, and the idea that, like you said, that, that art can be meaningful in that way, that it can actually share the story that might be hard to tell, but through the direction of Steven Spielberg and all the many good actors in the film that, that that can communicate. I mean, that's just such a powerful notion and that exists, you know, and I, and I'm grateful for movies that do that. Yes, absolutely. So in, Hey, you know, I'd like to give you an opportunity. I really enjoy this. I was looking for, when I first connected with, with Katie, I was like, my wife has been hearing about this for weeks ever since we've, um, because I really enjoy what you do. If, if people want to hear more about this and, and, and a, you guys have talked about, <laughs> I listen to the Punisher episodes. I listen to the big Lebowski episodes. I am a, <laughs> I am a, um, a fan of the dude. I, I don't practice nice. dudism. Uh, I don't, I'm not a dudist, but I, it is a, a good film. Um, but, but so how can they find more about you maybe on social media and, and, and how to check out the Jedi Council podcast? Well, first of all, I think Ted is the one who connected us. So I want to thank Ted, who I only know through through a uh, little Twitter and email. Is that do I have that right? Yeah. Ted Bonar actually is the you know, I, I blame him for a lot of stuff anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> well, 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 thank you, Ted. We really appreciate it. Our website is Jedi hyphen council, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. Dot com And from there, you can see our podcast episode, our blog posts that we also do um, or have done fictional diagnostic reports that are up there. And my Twitter handle is at D-R-K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-G-O-R-D-O-N. And mine is at Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N underscore Saxton, S-A-X-T-O-N. And yeah, always happy to connect with folks on Twitter. And Dwayne, I have to say, just I, I'm a I love following you on Twitter. You you do such awesome work, and you produce such amazing content. And this has been uh, just an absolute treat to to connect with you and have this opportunity to to kind of uh, share this film experience with you, and and especially someone with your expertise and, and your background and experiences. I think this has really been. Um, a highlight for me. I've learned a lot. I feel like I have a, a bet, much better understanding, certainly of moral injury and, and other aspects too. So thank you. Yeah. And, and, and uh, anytime you want to, you know, say you, you think you're talking about uh, 
mental health um, when it comes to veterans. So give me a call. I'll parachute in. I'll, I'll give you some <laughs> yes. thoughts, and then I'll and then I'll I'll take off. We appreciate yeah, that. We love that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.